Well, I have reached the zenith of perfection in my marriage. My marriage is 100% perfect. Stacey and I, yeah. So we never argue. Um, we always get along. Uh, Stacy never swears at me uh, anymore. She does, she's never, she's never. You know, we're just, our marriage is perfect. And so I finally, I was like, you know what, Stacy, I think we've reached it. We've reached perfection. I think it's time for me to teach on marriage. Do you think that's the case? No. Definitely not the case. And in fact, I'm going to open up with a story about how that's not the case. And some of you might feel better about your marriage. This the other day, it was a, I think it was a Friday afternoon, if I'm not mistaken. I had a long day at work. You know, I was tired. And for those who don't know, I work construction, so I'm outside all day. And uh, Stacy's working on a house, and she's painting the interior of the house. And some renters are going to be moving into the house within 24 hours of us being there, I think it is. And uh, so she asked me, she's like, what do you want me to do with all the paint and the tools and everything that are here? And I said, well, when I get off work, I want to I go pick all that stuff up and load it into my trailer and then go home and chill. And uh, so have it all staged in the garage. And so uh, she's like, okay, so anything that's going, you know, just put it in the garage. Thinking like tools and paint and things that we needed there to fix up this property. So I get there and I back the trailer up and I'm ready just to throw everything in the garage and go home and just relax and sit in the AC, you know, and eat dinner. And um, so I load all the tools up. I mean, I'm just like buzzing. I'm just like, let's do this. You know, I'm throwing things in there and she's wrapping up things inside the home. And she's, she's got the vacuum running inside the home, which is really loud. And uh, I'm, walking, I'm, I'm walking up to this big, there's probably about 15 cans of paint, okay? And I start carrying about, I carry about six of them, made it into the trailer. And as I'm carrying the cans of paint, I'm looking down at the tops of the cans of paint, and I see written in Sharpie are bedrooms that correspond to the house from which I'm carrying them. And I'm thinking, wait a second, this paint probably needs to stay here. Why am I putting it onto the trailer? And so I, I asked Stacey, I said, does this paint go? And she comes out to the garage. She's like, yeah, that goes. I'm like, okay, all right. And so I start to carry about two or three more cans of paint. I'm looking at it and, you know, it'll be like master bedroom. And I see like a splotch of paint. I'm like, yeah, the master bedroom in this house is that color. And I'm like, that's weird, but okay, she said it. And I still have this sickening feeling like I'm doing the wrong thing. Like there's, there's still 10 more cans of paint and I'm loading all these things up, you know, and it's hot. I mean, it's like, it was that, that week that was really hot. I'm pouring down sweat. So finally, I open the back door of the garage, and she's got the vacuum running. I'm like, Stacy, I need you to come out here and tell me where these are going. Are you sure? And I'm like, my voice is elevated, right? And I'm trying to yell over the vacuum, but I'm also a little bit frustrated. I'm thinking I'm wasting my time here. She comes out, and she's like, why are you yelling at me, right? And I'm like, guys, I'm yelling over the vacuum. I need you just to stand here and tell me where these paint cans go. And she's like, they go. I told you, they go to the shed. And I was like, the shed in the backyard. She's like, yeah, they go to the shed in the backyard. And I'm like, I've been walking the opposite direction with 10 paint cans so far. And I had this feeling. You told me they go. And they, I said, everything that goes in the trailer, put it in the garage. And here they are in the garage. And you told me they, they go. And I'm like, doing this. And I, now I have to unload these paint cans. And like, some of them are big paint cans. I'm like, this is... <laughs> I was like, why don't you just clarify? She's like, well, I thought you meant like our, it, the stuff is going to the shed. I thought you knew that those things go to the shed. I'm like, no. So finally we got it all figured out. She goes back in the house. Where do you think I put that paint? <laughs> I was fuming to the point that I carried six more cans of paint to the trailer. <laughs> I was just thinking, it was so large in my brain that those go to the trailer that I walked them out to the trailer and put them in the trailer. And I was like, I'm an idiot. 
I just put these in the trailer. <laughs> so then I had to carry them all back. I put them in a wheelbarrow and came to the shed. But it was, it was funny. It was, uh, it was an eventful Friday for us, Friday afternoon. And we were all tired. And we realized at the end of it, we sat there in the kitchen in the AC of this empty house after we got everything loaded up. And we took a minute. And I was, you know, we just both acknowledged we're tired. We're stressed. And uh, we shouldn't let that come between our friendship. So we didn't. But we had a fight. <laughs> right? You guys ever had fights? So my marriage is imperfect. And I think, you know, I was thinking in the past, gosh, I think it's been a year now I presented the idea of teaching on marriage. Actually, somebody came to me and it's like, can you teach on marriage? I love maps and charts and graphs and history, but I don't like teaching about these kinds of topics as much. And I put it off and put it off because, frankly, I felt a little bit inadequate to be able to teach on marriage because my marriage is imperfect. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest with you. And I don't feel qualified to teach on marriage because my marriage is not perfect. But I am married, and I'm married to my best friend, and I think I, it's safe to say, and, and Stacey and I actually talked about this just the other day, it's like, I think our marriage is the healthiest it's been since we got married, but it's not perfect. So I pushed it off and pushed it off, and finally people continue to ask me, hey, weren't you ever going to teach on marriage? And I was like, ah, oh, I guess I got to do it. So I, I kept thinking, you know, what if my credentials in teaching on marriage is that my marriage is not perfect, but rather that my marriage is imperfect, and I'm working through it and trying to make it perfect. <laughs> what if those are my credentials? And I got to thinking, yes, that's actually better than standing up and pretending like my marriage is, with Stacy is perfect. Does that make sense? So can you guys give me a little bit of grace today in that and recognize that Gabe Rutledge is not perfect. Stacy Rutledge is close to it, but not perfect. <laughs> so therefore, our marriage cannot be perfect, right? And I'm going to go on a limb and say that yours isn't either. But today, I, I don't want to give you a lot of like, here, do this and do that, and then your marriage will be perfect. I think there's enough Joyce Meyer cassette tapes out there that'll make that case. What I want to do today instead, did I say that out loud? Yeah. I shouldn't have said that out loud. What I want to do today is instead, I want, to, I want to reveal to you what I've learned about marriage and the goal of it and the purpose of marriage and how that has kind of helped me push through some of the conflicts, some of the personality differences, some of the things in my marriage that, that were imperfect. And maybe that'll help you today. But healthy marriages are the bedrock of a healthy family. If my marriage is unhealthy, my kids will see that, observe that, and that will manifest in them in different ways, depending on the kid, because they're all different. Now I'm looking, I'm scanning across the room here. There are people of every stage of marriage represented in this room. There are people that are really young and have never been married. There are people that are really young and never been married, but they're deeply in love and want to get married. <laughs> then there are people that have been married and they are happy or they're just, they're in the midst of it right now. Then there are people who are married, but the marriage didn't work out. Right? Then there are people that were married, the marriage worked out, but a spouse passed away. I got people in this room who are represented of all different shades and different stages of that kind of theme in their life. And so I want to today just give you encouragement as I'm teaching about this. Don't think and sit there, well, I'm not married, so therefore I can just zone out. <laughs> no. This, this, this teaching on marriage is as much to you as anyone else. Because you, as a community and as a body of believers in this room, you have a role to play in building up and encouraging marriages. That, you know, you're not, like Miss Joanne 
if she spoke words of, of, of wisdom and ex exhortation into my life and about my marriage, I would absolutely stop what I'm doing and listen, even though she's currently not married. So I want you to find your place in this. You single person, you widowed person, I want you to find your place in this and realize that you have a role to play in people's marriages as well. Now, I'm not telling you to be nosy. I'm not telling you to be, you know, pry into people's marriages, but you can say things and you can pray for young couples or older couples, and those prayers make a huge change. But marriages are the bedrock of a family. And then families are the bedrock, a healthy family is the bedrock of a healthy <laughs> congregation and community just like you guys. So why do I want to teach on this? Because I want a healthy congregation. <laughs> As a shepherd of Yeshua's flock, my job is to keep you healthy and keep you in the faith and to draw others into the faith. And if we're all unhealthy, if all of our marriages are falling apart, if there's scandals and there's this and that, it's like what people look at that and they would say that's not anything different what the world has to offer. Why would I want that? And I got to dress up and, you know, like go and sing songs and stuff. No, I don't want anything to do with that. But if people saw, wow, there's health there, there's happiness there, there's joy there, there's wholeness there, there's something I, I long for, there's meaning, there's purpose. I want some of that in this purposeless world and existence that I have. Then yeah, I think that's the goal. So as a shepherd, I want, you know, I'm seeing that the, the epicenter of a healthy congregation is you as couples being married in a healthy way and not being perfect, but being healthy. And it's even reflected on our website it's our priorities right here are listed on our website as a congregation. Number one priority is to bring individuals to a saving knowledge and relationship with their Messiah, Yeshua. Number two, to strengthen marriages and families in their walk with Yeshua and to empower fathers to become the priests of their homes. That's our number two priority as a congregation. And I'm just now after four years getting around to teaching about marriage. So I apologize for that. But I've, I've, I hope that I've done things to help and support and encourage couples that come to our congregation. Here's another reason why, is because if we're to be set apart and holy, we have to beat this graph. We have to be lower than this graph. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be stuck in an unhealthy marriage and an abusive marriage and in a marriage that's, you know, wrought with, with uh, infidelity. But what I am saying is we should find the things that, that cause divorce and we should work through them and prevent, uh, prevent them, I should say. But you notice here, it does like a, a hockey stick thing about the year 1962. What else happened in 1962? Anything else happened in 1962? It was a Supreme Court decision. Prayer was barred from public schools. Yeah. Prayer was barred from public schools. It was ruled by the Supreme Court in 1962 that, uh, that, that prayer in, in state-sponsored schools was an infringement on First Amendment right of students. So does it have a correlation? I don't know. But it's, it's there. I don't know. Why else teach on marriage? Because this is in the Bible. <laughs> You're like, what is this? You Hebrew students in the room, maybe you could help me read this. But starting from right to left, maybe you can help me uh, identify where I'm reading from. Vayomer ha'adam. ha'pa'am. Etzim. So he's saying, and Adam said, behold, this bones... Me, bones from my bones, vebasar, mebisari, from my flesh, flesh from my flesh. Lezot yikra, and he called, he called isha, he called, he called that isha. 
Ki ma'ish, because from the ish, she came. So this is in the Bible. So bones from my bones, flesh from my flesh. So he called her, he called her an isha, from the ish. In other words, he called her a woman from a man, right? They're connected just intrinsically right there at creation in Genesis chapter 2. And Al-Kin, and yes, he says, therefore, Ya'azav Ish, and the man should leave Et-Aviv, his father, the Et-Imo, and his mother, Vedavach Ba'ishto, and he shall, like, there's, it's really hard to translate. Davak means, it's like, I think in modern Hebrew, it's to glue two things together. And he should be like glued to his ish, uh, his ish, his, his woman. Vehayu lebasa echad. And they shall become one flesh. And it's like, wow, that's in the Bible. Second chapter of the Bible. That God creates man and he creates a woman. And then he's like, man, I want you to leave the husband. I want you to leave your father and your mother. And I want you to become like glued to this Isha. <laughs> and then we get to Genesis 3 and it all falls apart. Right? And it's like he shackles two fallen human beings together. And he's like, figure it out. <laughs> oh, that's a big assignment, right? And then not only that, you're going to create fallen human beings between the two of you. That are going to test you even more. And notice here, men in the room that it says that he should leave his father and his mother. I've seen far too often husbands that treat their wives like their mommy. They still haven't left their mommy. Don't treat your wife like your mommy. She's not there to, to wash all your dishes and wipe your mouth and you know bail you out of every little crisis you get in and give you like, hey honey, would you like some potato chips with that beer? She's not your mommy. You left your mommy. She's your wife. She's your bride. Right? I see that far too often, though. Don't do that to your wife. But why teach on marriage? Because I firmly believe that who you marry and or make babies with on the first go-around is the second most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life. You might be thinking, wait, what? Yes. If you're a young person in this room, if you're in the ages of like 12 to 18-ish and you're yet to be married, the next five years, there's like a five-year window. The things that you decide and decisions you make will determine the rest of your life. Now, you don't have to be shaped by those things. They're not going to follow you around and mold your identity, but they are there. And, and you might be thinking, well, you know, if it doesn't work out, I can always get a divorce. Divorce doesn't fix very much. And when there's kids involved, it doesn't really fix. Ask any divorced person that has kids in the room. It doesn't fix a lot. It fixes some things, and it opens up opportunities for other things. But it's like it's still there. And I'm not trying to shame anyone or anything like that. But what I am trying to say to the young people in this room right now, who you marry and or make babies with that first go-around will follow you the rest of your life some way or another. It is the second most important decision you will ever make in your entire life. 
Is that big? Is that weighty? Absolutely it is. It won't just go away. It won't. It will change you. And that's okay. God can redeem that and use it for his glory. I've seen it. There are people sitting in this room who have allowed God to do that in their life. But it's huge. There's a story that my mom just reminded me of not too long ago. She makes this stuff called tuna noodle casserole. And much to my chagrin, she puts peas in it, canned peas. And I'm not a big fan of canned peas. Well, one day she made it for me. I don't know how old I was. She's been making it all my life. And I, I like it. You know, sometimes she, she uh, when I'm on her good side, she'll make a special little batch without the peas. And I like that. But, the, you know, a man should leave his father and mother. And... But no, uh, one time she made me tuna noodle casserole and she didn't make a separate, you know, little dish with the peas. So I, uh, I, I decided to uh, take all the peas in the tuna noodle casserole that she gave me and spell out the words, take a hint on my plate. And I left it on the table. You think that was a good call? No, it wasn't. Take a hint. Now, for some, I can't speak for all the wives in the room, but for some husbands in the room, maybe that's how you approach your marriage. I know that's how popular culture tells you to, to approach your marriage, to pick all the peas out, right? And then tell your wife to take a hint. <laughs> take a hint or take a hike, right? But is that God's way of approaching marriage? Is that what the Bible tells us about marriage? And husbands and wives, when you get married, there will be those peas in their lives, right? There will be those things you're like, I don't really like this about this person. Is it your job to go through and like, let me get this, let me fix this in you. I spent like the first five to eight years of my marriage with Stacy trying to make her a morning person. <laughs> if I could just get, you know, just like if I could have coffee with her at like six in the morning, and just go running with her or something like that, you know? But it's like, no, stop. It's not my job. My job is to look at Gabe Rutledge and to surrender to God the things that he wants to cleanse out of me and to make me a better husband to her, right? One of the things I do for work is I go into a house that's mostly finished and I look for imperfections in the house and then I put blue tape on those imperfections. Yesterday I was doing this for about two hours and I must have had 500 pieces of blue tape all around this five, bed five bedroom house. And sometimes that's how we approach marriage as well. It's like I want to flag the things that I dislike about this person and they need to fix those things or else I'm not, I'm not there, right? I'm perfect somehow, but they're not, right? But instead, what if you didn't approach your wife or your husband like this and take a hint and spelling it out with peas, but you approached your husband or your wife and your marriage like this. How many of you garden in the room? Two people. <laughs> Three-ish. Four, five. Okay, good, good. Yeah, you can raise your hand. It's okay. Yeah, what do you, what's different about that? You know, when um, I was teaching middle school one year, I had a bunch of, I had a seventh grade class. They were rascals. And I knew after week one, these kids are going to run me into the ground. I had to do something drastic. And I was like, these guys got to get outside. So one of the things we decided to do was to create a garden, a classroom garden. So I took this patch of sand that was out straight out of our bedroom, our, our uh, classroom window, and we found some scrap lumber, 
And I built six raised beds with this scrap lumber. They built it. I taught them how to build them. And then we couldn't use the sand that was there. What did we have to do? We had to order in dirt. We had it donated by a local nursery. And then even still, we had to treat that soil and build it up in its nutrients. So we had to add compost and fertilizer because it wasn't the best of soils. And then we started growing stuff and we started monitoring stuff. And the, the kids, the seventh graders, they loved it so much. They were, they were pulling carrots out of the ground and eating them after washing them off. They'd never done that in their entire lives. They were taking a, pe a piece and a patch of soil, a patch of sand, which is like covered with sand spurs and just useless. And they were watching food grow out of it. They were cultivating that ground like they'd never done before. But it took a lot of time. We had volunteers that had to go out there and, and water the garden every morning and pull weeds and look for bugs and caterpillars. And they were spending so much time. But they knew that if we invest this time into this, if we cultivate this, we will get some kind of harvest out of it. And it will bless us. We had so much food growing one year in this little six-bed raised garden thing that we had. We, we couldn't give it all away. We were given it. We had like milk crates full of romaine lettuce and tomatoes and peppers and all kinds of stuff. We had chicken eggs and all stuff. We eventually, um, we eventually branched out into chickens. We weren't growing chicken eggs in the garden. But it was, it was awesome. And those kids for the first time, and they, they, they still wipe me from time to time and keep in touch with me because of the bond that we created over, the, over teaching them how to garden. Your marriage should be like a garden. You're going you're gonna to marry someone that's imperfect and you are very imperfect as well. But what do you do? You cultivate it. You spend time in it. And you, you, you make sure that you're feeding into it, knowing that you're going to eventually get an output out of that. But look at your marriage like that. That, yeah, I might not see the results of this kind word or this habit that I'm going to put away or, you know, this addiction that I'm going to give up and allow the Lord to heal me of. I might not see the fruits of that right away, but eventually I will. Right? Eventually the, the wounds that I've dealt my spouse will heal if I continue down this trajectory. So look at your, look at your marriage like that. What we're going to do today is go through the who, when, why, and how of marriage. Notice they're kind of out of order a little bit, and that's on purpose. But the why of marriage. Well, actually, we're going to go who. I just tricked myself. The who. Who can get married? And, and this, is, this, is not, uh, this, is, this is not what's a popular TV channel. Or, this is not YouTube talking. This is not TikTok talking. This is Gabe taking biblical principles and sharing them with you. Because I don't want what the world has when it comes to marriage. The world is full of confusion when it comes to marriage. The world is wrought with dysfunction and identity crises. It's just, it's just all ate up, right? So I'm going to take passages from the Bible and do my best to distill them down for you. Who can get married? One consulting, consenting I'm sorry, male, adult male, and one consenting adult female. Now, right there, let's pause. What is a male and what is a female? <laughs> I encourage you, adults in the room, watch Matt Walsh's What is a Woman? Watch it. Matt Walsh's What is a Woman? But what is a man? Let's just, hey, let's just make sure we're on the same page here. Let's just follow the anatomy. A, ma a male is defined by this, two X chromosomes. A female, an X and a Y chromosome. That's DNA. You can't change it. It's there all your life. Can we all agree that that's a male, that's a female? Okay. So one of those and then one of those, they can get married. Make sense? Now, like I said, that's what this book says. 
So if you believe that this is God's unchanging world, un unchanging word, you have to agree with that statement. There is no way you can massage this to say anything else. I've taken question after question, especially when I taught school. Uh, I've done it on YouTube. I've taken questions and I have dissected verses in here that people bring up. Well, maybe, you know, the verses that I talk about, man lying with a man is just dealing with a young child. Like that's barring pedophilia. No, I, I broke that down and dissected that. Uh, but if you believe this is God's word, which I hope you do, then you have to agree with that statement. One man, one woman. If you agree in faith, I highly discourage you to marry someone that is not on the same page as your faith. You're set up for failure. Now, there are people in the room who married someone and then they got born again and their spouse has yet to be born again. Stay married to them. That's not what I'm saying. Don't, don't leave them. I'm just saying if you're, if you're like 16, 17, 18 years old in the room and you're looking for a spouse or you, 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 you know, you're in that age, that window where you could potentially get married, don't missionary date. Don't missionary marry. It doesn't work out really. All right? While not bad to obtain, a marriage is not, a biblical union and marriage is not legitimized by a certificate from the government, from the Houston County Courthouse. You get, you get me? We in, 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 in the, the Messianic movement, really the, the body Messiah at large, has been duped into this notion that a courthouse certificate means you're legitimate. Now, it's not bad to get. There are perks to getting that. I got that. But what happened uh, in the Church of England, in the Anglican Church, is that the Anglican Church was, was it was like a theocracy, right? You get me? The, the Anglican Church was the governing power of England at the time. England had a large, vast empire. Part of that expanded to the eastern coast of what is now North America, called the 13 Colonies. They were predominantly under British control, right, and British influence influence and under the, the control by extension of the Anglican Church. Well, the Anglican Church was the be-all and end-all of who could get married and who could not get married. They gave you a license. And it was a religious thing, but it was also a very politicized thing as well. And so, naturally, because we kind of descended from that, and our, our 13 colonies formed an independent nation, we just kind of absorbed that. And we were like, well, you know, the, the, the local municipalities and states or whatever, they can then approve or disapprove of marriages. So we, as a collective body of Messiah, have kind of since gone along with that. And we have this notion that, oh, yeah, you know, the Houston County Courthouse gets to define what marriage is and what marriage isn't. False. Just because they give you a piece of paper that says that you're married does not necessarily line up with what this says about your marriage. Does that make sense? Don't co-opt that out to the state. Now, it'd be great if the state was in alignment with this, but it always isn't the case. It isn't always the case. Your marriage should be defined by God's unchanging word, not Houston County Courthouse and a marriage license that you paid 75 bucks for. Okay? But again, not bad to get. I have one. <laughs> but it's important that we keep that in perspective. When? When can you get married? When, if you're in the room right now, and you're like, I'm wondering when it's appropriate to get married. One consenting adult male and one consenting adult female, okay? We're not going to marry off children. We're not going to do all this. 
you need to be an adult. You need to have your mental faculties fully developed. <laughs> if, if that's the case when you're 20. I don't know if it's <laughs> mine or not. <laughs> but also, I won't marry someone unless I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the man, the bridegroom-to-be, can provide for his bride-to-be both physically and spiritually. Notice all the impetuses on who? The man. The man. Why? Well, we're going to get into that a little bit later as to why that's the case. But, you know, if a couple come to me and, and they're like, hey, I want to I get married. I'm like, okay, one of the first questions I'm going to ask is, you know, are you able to make ends meet? <laughs> are you able to put a roof over your bride's head? Might not be a really nice roof. But you guys need to be on a good footing financially and spiritually. Are you able to teach your wife the gospel and teach your children the gospel and lead them to the gospel? And then ideally, the union will last until death. Right? Go with, uh, go with me to Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9. Matthew 19. Matthew 19. There was a problem going on in the first century, and a dispute going on in the first century, where the rabbis of the time, and the powers that be, the religious leaders of the time, were trying to decide when is it appropriate that a, a man put away and divorce a woman. And you've got to remember, in the, in the ancient uh, uh, Middle Eastern culture, if you're a woman... You're not, I mean, only, only in Western United States of American modern times is a woman being considered like equal with a man, which, you know, I think it's good that she has equal rights and everything. But back in, in the first century, 2,000 years ago, in the Middle East, that was not the case, right? And if you were married, but then you were divorced by your husband, what do you think your, your chances of finding a new husband? Do you think they're greater or smaller? Much smaller, right? So there was this issue going on in the first century between the powers and the religious leaders of the time when is it okay for a man to do that to a woman? Because that could potentially set her up for failure future in, you know, in, in her future life. When is it appropriate? And the great Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai, they had this dispute going on, and you can read about that in the Mishnah and the Gemara a little bit, and they, they kind of put out some, some ideas on that and some, some, uh, some rulings on that. But here is our Rabbi, Yeshua of Nazareth, talking. And he says in Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9, when Yeshua had finished talking about these things, he left the Galilee and traveled down the east side of the Jordan River until he passed the border of Judah, and great crowds followed him, and he healed, uh, he healed them there. But some Pharisees came and tried to trap him by asking him, Is it permitted that a man uh, should divorce his wife on any grounds whatsoever? And he replied, Haven't you read that at the beginning, of the, cre uh, the, beginning the Creator, now look, he's going to quote what I read to you in Hebrew, He made them male and female. And that he said, for this reason, a man should leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two should become one flesh. Thus they are no longer two, but are one. So then, no one should split apart what God has joined together. So there, he answers their question, right? Sort of. He's like, don't split up. <laughs> you see, men were taking kind of a license with this ruling, and they were putting their wives away for any reason. Halal says up to even if she just burns your food. <laughs> and Yeshua comes on the scene and is like, whoa, 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 no. They said to him, then why did Moses give the commandment that a man should hand his wife a certificate of divorce? And he answered, because Moses allowed you divorce your wives because your hearts are so hardened. But this is not how it was at the beginning. Now what I say to you is that whoever divorces his wife, whoever puts his wife away, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, and marries another woman, he commits adultery. 
You see, Yeshua is speaking to this, this uh, license that these men were taking to put their wives away and to divorce them and to treat them like second-class citizens. And he's saying, no, no, this marriage we're trying to do like it was at the beginning. This marriage is holy and special. And unless there's sexual immorality going on, you cannot put her away. You cannot, you cannot write her a certificate of divorce. You cannot do that. You can't take that license and do that. Because you're ultimately you're damaging her psychologically and emotionally to do that. Just because, you know, you don't like how she cooks or, or whatever, you know, like because maybe she, she talks to you too much or whatever. You can't do that. So, ideally, the union will last until your death. And as Adrian likes to say, the sweet release of death. <laughs> He's not here. He's probably watching online and laughing. But why? And this is the big one we're going to cover today. Why marriage? If you think about it, let's put ourselves and pretend for a moment that we are atheists. We are biological evolutionists. And we believe that we are just highly evolved forms of bacteria and pond scum. And we're just like a next step up from the apes, right? Let's pretend that we believe that for a second. What is every male animal's role and goal and job in the animal kingdom? What is his goal? Let, thank you. To procreate. Take any male animal in the animal kingdom. Do you see your neighborhood tomcat sticking around and providing for and, and, and having devotions with his, his mama kitty and, and the babies and, okay, guys, I'm going to go off and hunt for some mice now? No, you don't see that, do you? Some may have it, you know, like a little bit of that going on where they mate for life or whatever. But the goal of every male animal is to procreate. <laughs> right? To, to, and it's not necessarily bad, but that's what animals do. So why in the world, if I'm an atheist, would I think to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find one other person of an opposite gender, and I'm going to stay faithful to them up until we die. That goes counter to my logic as an atheist. Now, don't get me wrong. Every human, because you're made in the likeness and the image of God, you desire that. So even the atheist desires that, and he doesn't know why. I know why, because he's stealing from our worldview to, uh, to excuse his own. But he's made in the image and the likeness of God. Therefore, he wants to be in a relationship that is stable, that is healthy, and that is monogamous the rest of his life. But he doesn't have a worldview that supports that. Right? In his worldview, everything is just procreation and fun. It's like, I live here, I'm, I'm here now, I have about 80 years if I'm lucky, and then I'm gone. I might as well just enjoy it. Right? I might as well experience all that this world has to offer, including women. If you really believe this, if you're an atheist and you really believe in your atheism, that's the, that's the road you would go down. But the fact of the matter is, you don't really believe in your atheism. Because you've been made in the likeness and the image of God, and you want that healthy, monogamous, continuous relationship with one person. You got me? But the trifold purpose of marriage is this, and this is, this, I came up with these three, and you might have some more. But number one, to prepare another fallen human being for eternity. Whoa. <laughs> Stacy's job for me is to help prepare me for eternity in the kingdom, and vice versa. What does that look like? We might get into that here in a minute. But number two, 
to be a visible illustration of God's love for his people. Wow. You mean it's not just about companionship? And we get along really well, and he makes me laugh, and all this, and he's cute, he's got big muscles. And I think we would make cute babies. <laughs> no, it's not. It's, it's to be an illustration of God's love for his people to the world. Number three, to bring in and raise up children who pursue holiness and tikkun olam, the repair of this world. Now you might be thinking like, I didn't have any children or I can't have any children. You can still raise up children in this world. You can still be a significant influence of young people in your life. And in doing so, raise them up. Look for the motherless. Look for the fatherless. Look for those who, whose, whose family have, they've been estranged from their family. And be a mother, be a father to them. If you can't find anyone, let me know. I'll help you find some people. But I think these are the big three purposes of our marriage. And I was just counseling with a couple the other day. And I said, your homework is this before we meet again. I want you guys to sit down and write out a mission statement. I hope they did their homework. <laughs> Sit down and write out a mission statement. Why? Because I believe that that's a good unifying document that you both can agree on. Hey, we're on the same team here. We're driving forward with this mission, this goal. And I hope, you know, these are some, some three things that you can add to that mission statement right there. But human marriages are a social stage, let's call it, on which the dramatic story of the gospel is to be played out. And the principal reason why men and women fall in love and get married is because the whole human story is about romance coming down to us, right? You remember this picture? <laughs> Jonathan and Catherine's wedding. That was a beautiful photo, beautiful day. So think about that. Your marriage, if you are married in this room, it's like you're acting out this divine supernatural skit, this drama for others around you to see and inquire about God's love for his people. I guarantee you, if you woke up every morning and you looked at your wife or you looked at your husband and you thought about that, it would change how you talk to them and interact with them, would it not? One of the things, some of you don't know, I went to, I, I was in Army ROTC in college. And I had this, uh, I had this um, instructor, he was a lieutenant colonel, he's an awesome guy, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Haydack was his name. And uh, amazing leader, amazing teacher, just a great down-to-earth guy. And uh, he taught me this really cool principle. He taught, he taught about morale, he taught, he taught about, um, about subordinates that you're leading. Because I was preparing to be an officer in the army. And he, he said, you know what? If you ever have people that are grumbling, if you ever have soldiers under you that, that are being negative and pessimistic and they just don't understand why you're doing something and they're always complaining, give them the map. I was like, what? You know, give them the map. And give them the compass, you know? Now, he's not saying literally hand them the map. What is he saying in that? He's saying when you have a difficult task ahead of you and you have to be the, deliver, you have to be the one to deliver that news that, hey guys, we're going to get out there. Yeah, it's forecast to rain all weekend long, but we're going to go out there and we're going to train for X, Y, and Z. You're going to be away from your family. You're going to be away from a hot cooked meal. You're going to be sleeping out on the ground and you're going to be drenched 
and soaking wet. You're going to sleep poorly. When you got to be the guy to deliver that news and they start complaining, give them the map. Meaning, show them why. Explain to them, here's where we are, here's where we need to go, and here's why we need to go there. Here's the compass. Give them the map. And I believe that, you know, in, in Stacey and I's marriage, I've kind of taken that into my, my philosophy and my paradigm. Where we each have a goal and we have a mission as a, as a unified couple. And our mission is the same. Our calling is the same. We're a unit. But if I just say, you know what, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, that's my calling, I'm going to fulfill this, I'm going to go here, I'm going to teach that, or whatever, but I don't have buy-in from Stacy on that. How long will I last in that? Even more so, how long will my marriage last in that? Not very long. It won't be a healthy one. And we've seen time and time again, men of God, preachers, pastors, evangelists, they are just gung-ho. They are just amazing movers and shakers. But something happens in their marriage. Because they didn't have buy-in. They weren't a unit. They didn't understand the mission. They weren't given the map. Does that make sense? And I always say this, guys. If you feel called to do ministry or be evangelist or be a pastor, that's great. That's wonderful. I encourage that. But one of the godliest things and holiest things you can do in this age is to be a husband that treats his wife like Messiah treats his bride. To wake up in the morning Put on your big boy pants, go to work, earn a paycheck, stay faithful to your wife, come home, be kind to your wife after the world has puked all over you, and repeat it over and over again. Raise godly children. That is one of the holiest and godliest things you could achieve in this age. You might be thinking, wait a second, what about... You know, shouldn't I go out and like win all my neighbors to the Lord and all that stuff? Yeah, you should. You could do that. You could try. But if you're doing that to the detriment of the former, then you failed. You got me? Don't try to do that if your marriage is all ate up either. Fix inside your home. Get peace inside your home. Get wholeness inside your home. And then you can go out and conquer the world for the kingdom of God. That's one of the godliest and holiest things you can do. I'm going to read a quote to you from a book called Adam Loves Eve. And this is written by Grant Luton. If you men in the room, this is for men, married men. If you haven't read this book, buy it and read it. It's phenomenal. But Adam Loves Eve. And there's a painting up here. I want you to look at that and, uh, and, and reflect on that as I read. This is from the foreword of his book. He says, Marriage is the grand theme of the Bible. Genesis opens with the marriage of the first man and woman, and Revelation closes with the marriage of Messiah and his bride. The giving of the Torah on Sinai is traditionally viewed as a wedding between God and his people, and Jesus performed the first miracle at a wedding banquet. Marriage is uniting of two opposites, a man and a woman, to create something new, something unique, a relationship wherein two people each relinquish self for the sake of fulfilling the other. It is two individuals fused together in love, yet maintaining their individual identities. Two opposite beings considering the other as better than themselves. 
and two, becoming one by giving and not taking. Your marriage is what you, the husband, make it. More than a century ago, Edmund Layton created a painting, the one you see up there, called The Accolade. It depicts a knight, clad in chainmail, kneeling before his queen. She is a beautiful and regal young woman, bearing a crown on her head and a sword in her hand. She rests the blade on the, of the sword on the knight's shoulder, its edge just mere inches from his neck, as she benights him into her service. To me, no painting so beautifully depicts the delicate balance of a perfect marriage. I have shared this image with many acquaintances and solicited their opinions. And without exception, each woman who sees the accolade wants to be like the queen, and each man wants to be like the knights. And every wife wants to be adored by her husband, just as the queen is obviously adored by the knights. And every husband wants to be respected by his wife, as the knight is respected and honored by the queen. Does this picture reflect the mutual love and adoration between you and your wife? No? Well, there is more to this painting than its romantic imagery. The accolade also depicts grave danger. The queen and the knight are in somewhat of a Mexican standoff. The powerful knight, trained in weaponry and warfare, could, if he chose, snap the queen in two like a stick. She, on the other hand, holds a razor-sharp sword against his neck. Now, perhaps you say, this painting is starting to look like my marriage. Do you and your wife each fear the threat posed by the other? Do you fear vulnerability? Vulnerability. That is the sticking point where honor and danger coincide. If you wish to have a blissful marriage, you must make yourself vulnerable. There is no exception to this rule. But do not mistake vulnerability for weakness. The image of a knight kneeling in submission before his queen is an image of power under control. And power un under control is the essence of a real man and a real husband. There is one additional detail in the accolade that I wish to describe in the background of the painting. It's a crowd of onlookers, both young and old, standing quietly and in admiration of what they are witnessing. But the figure that captures my attention is the young boy at the front of the crowd holding the knight's shield. I can almost read his thoughts. He wants to grow up to be just like the knights, to walk in the knight's footsteps and someday be honored just as the knight is. You see, the battle for your marriage is not just about you. It's not just about you and your wife. The victory you seek is for you, your wife, your children, your grandchildren, and everyone else in your realm of influence. You're being watched, and what you do matters. Many are pulling for you and wishing to hear your tales of victory in battle because the grand theme of the Bible, the battle for the bride, is also the grand theme of your life. Your marriage, in its own way, is part of the great marriage of the Lamb and His Bride. I hope that gives you a, a greater perspective and a, more, a broader paradigm, eternal perspective, of your marriage today if you are married. That your marriage is influential. So influential. And what happens in your marriage trickles down from generation to generation. Many of the world's problems, whether it be mass poverty, exploitation, slavery, which is still going on today, wars, a lot of all that stuff and injustice can be tied back and pinpointed to 
somewhere along the line, a father and a husband not living up to his calling. When I go to Uganda, it's clearly evident these people need a good father. This nation needs a good father and a husband. And many leaders have risen up within this country and have just failed it miserably and further exploited them. So husbands in the room, what you do and how much you pour yourself into your children and your wife has generational impact for years and years to come. Now, you can reverse that cycle, obviously. But what does the world see when it looks at your marriage? So Gabe and Stacy Rutledge, what would it see if they looked at our marriage? Does it see two humans trying to pick out the things they dislike, like the peas in my mom's tuna noodle casserole? Or does it see the gospel in a way to the garden? Does it see two people that are actively trying to cultivate their relationship? Does it see that in your marriage? And I always tell young couples as they're about to get married and young people in the room, listen close. Marry your best friend. You can't go wrong. And if you married someone and you're not best friends, learn how to be their best friend. Make them your best friend. I'm not saying you can't have any other friends. They need to be your best friend. And you can't go wrong. Now guys, a successful marriage is not making it to the end of your life and dying, but you, you guys were grumpy for 50 years. And you, you hated each other's guts for 50 years, but you were so scared of what the world would say if you finally got divorced. That's not a happy marriage. That's not a successful, blissful marriage. <laughs> a successful marriage is being a representation of the gospel. Two human beings who are fallen, are sinful, are prideful, are selfish, but shackled together and are working through those things. That's a successful marriage, representing the gospel. So let me read a couple of verses here. But actually, uh, the how is going to be to be continued here. Um, let me go to, I left my phone here. Let me go to, uh, turn with me to Ephesians, Ephesians 1. And my mom is pocket dialing me as we speak here. She must be telling me she really loved my teaching today. You can just text me, Mom, if you want. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 5. I'm sorry, I told you the wrong thing. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. Paul is picking up on this, and we're going to close out with this before we do something else. Paul is picking up on this idea that your marriage represents the gospel. He says in verse 22, Ephesians 5, 22, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. But husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, through cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You see what Paul is doing there? He's saying that this relationship between the body of Messiah 
and Yeshua, it's like a, uh, what's the mathematical, um, proportionate, proportionate ratio to your marriage with your spouse. It's a representation of that. Where I leave off, verse 28. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does, the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, and he's quoting here again, Genesis chapter 2, the man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become besar echad, one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and his church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Paul is saying your marriage is so much more than just yourself, and maybe so much more than having two incomes, so much more than just your quest for companionship and longing and purpose and filling that void that God put in you. It's about acting out on a social stage the gospel and his love for his people. The how is to be continued. We're not going to get into that today. How to get married. <laughs> but I, I want to uh, I put this in here. And Emily's been dodging me. And uh, Chris told me she's been dodging me. Because she's fearful that I'm going to embarrass her and give her a hard time. And that is absolutely true. <laughs> But you guys are invited, speaking of marriage, you guys are invited the 31st of July to a marriage between Chris and Emily. And uh, you can RSVP by calling that number or texting that number right there. And they would love to have your presence at 6.30 p.m. on July 31st at 208 Sumac Court, where Alexis and Patrick got married four years ago, was it? A little over four years ago, yeah. When was your anniversary? The 25th of June? Uh-oh, uh-oh, oh boy. <laughs> I, think it was, I think it was June. Alexis, do you know the month? You don't know? You're like, man, I'm just surviving. But yeah, come celebrate with Chris and Emily. It would be a lot of fun. Yeah, 6.30, 6.30. And we'll, we'll put this out too, but you guys are invited as, as their extended family of faith here. And don't forget... Workday here tomorrow, 7.30 a.m., bright and early. Come with some, some uh, change of clothes if you need it, or some water, some gloves, some yard tools, and we'll have a great time. What I want to do um, as we close out this morning, if, if uh, the, the uh, musicians can come back up, and I don't want to beat this song to death, but I thought that song was so beautiful, singing in Hebrew, um, You Deserve the Glory. And what I want to do, we're ending early today, and... I want to take a moment, if you are married in the room, uh, let's, let's all rise and married couples in the room. What I want to do as they are playing through that song, um, and just taking a few minutes, maybe five minutes or so, as they're playing through and singing that song, you deserve the glory. Husbands, I want you to pray for your wife. And husbands to be, pray for your wife. <clears throat> Chris. <laughs> and if you have no idea what to pray 
Let me give you some pointers. Put your arm around your wife and just be thankful to God for her. And think of all the wonderful qualities that she has and tell God in her presence and in her hearing how thankful you are of her. Can you do that for me? And everyone else in the room that is not standing, has not had your spouse present, I want to welcome you after a couple minutes, maybe just walk up to someone if you feel comfortable doing this, and just pray over them as a couple. The world wants the people standing in this room right now, the world wants them to not be standing together. Satan wants to split them up. The world is throwing all kinds of garbage, especially at men. If you have a smartphone, I was just talking to a guy the other day at lunch. It's just like there's so much just algorithmically driven when you go through your smartphone on social media or whatever that is like trying to draw you in. It's so true that Satan is prowling around like a lion and he wants to devour men and husbands. He'll come after wives as well. But the people that are standing in this room, he wants them to be split up. So I think it's incumbent upon us as a congregation to, to rally around these people and to pray for their protection as a couple. So you, got, you guys do that. Let's, let's pray. Husbands, pray for your wives. And then after a few minutes, if you feel comfortable, walk up to a couple, put your arm around them, or just stand next to them and pray for them as a couple. Pray for their protection as we just play through this song a couple times here. Yeah.